Good evening, folks. Let's turn to uh, 1 Samuel, if you would. 1 Samuel 27, actually. I said good evening. I didn't give you a, some of you responded, and I was talking over you, but um, good to see you. Hope you're doing well. I'm glad you're here tonight to be a part of the study. Uh, we are studying the book of 1 Samuel, and I'd love for you to join us there. I'll give you a brief recap in just a second, uh, just to kind of bring you up to speed where we are, if you haven't been here lately or visiting with us tonight. So you know a little bit about what we're doing here. Good to hope you're having a good week, enjoying the pretty weather. And uh, hard to believe November's here. Uh, turn your clocks back. I guess if you, unless you, if you've got a manual, most most of us don't. I guess I don't think I have any clock. I have to turn the microwave and the stove. But I think those are the only two in the house that we actually have to change these days. Everything else is kind of wired in to internet. So anyway, if you have to do it manually, make sure you turn your clocks back this weekend, Saturday night. Okay, so book of 1 Samuel. This is one of the one of the historical books in the Old Testament. It is it is it, along with the other historical books. It it's basically helping the people see the lessons of the Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament. It's basically helping them to see that if you keep the covenant with God, He will bless you, and if you don't, God will still be faithful to the covenant, but part of, being, part of His being faithful to the covenant is it's going to bring about bad things. We're going to see that some tonight as we look at this text, but uh, in fact, a lot of scholars view the Old Testament like this. You've got, you've got Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, and then the rest of the Old Testament is just helping them see, look, this is how you apply it, this is how you live it, and this is what happens if you don't live it, and if you do live it, then things will be good. And, um, and then you can even distill that a little bit more with the book of Deuteronomy, because the book of Deuteronomy is an explanation of the law itself. It's a retelling of the law, and so it kind of takes the lessons of the law and puts them in, in a couple of speeches that Moses makes. And then the rest of the Old Testament is helping them to see what God said in Deuteronomy is going to be true, and you need to live it. And, uh, and then if you want to narrow it down a little bit more, within the book of Deuteronomy, you've got a couple of chapters there where God, he, uh, he tells them, he says, you know, I want, I want you to go up, I want you to take somebody up on one mountain, and he's going to pronounce all these curses. And, 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 and these curses are, you know, if you do this, then this is going to happen, this bad thing. And if you do this, this is going to happen. And then you go up on the other mountain, Mount, that was Mount Ebal, and then you go up on this one, Mount Gerizim, and you pronounce these blessings, and if you're faithful, God will bless you. If you're not, you know. So you, you got all this, and then we come to 1 Samuel, which is a, a telling of the history of Israel. And in that telling of the story, we have these embodied principles, these, these real-life stories about people who either kept the covenant or didn't keep it. And in the book of 1 Samuel, we have a contrast between one who kept it and one who didn't. Neither one of them kept it perfectly. Even David didn't keep it perfectly. But, but you have an example of Saul, the king, the first king, who broke covenant and as a result of that was punished. And then you have David who tried to keep covenant and as a result of that he was blessed. So anyway, that's, that's where we are. We're in about, if you like chron chronological stuff, we're about 1000 B.C. or so. And... We are near the beginning of David's reign, and so they, 
They come out of Egypt. You've got a period of about, um, about 400 years with judges, these quasi-governmental you know, rulers. And, and then you've got the first king because the people wanted a king like everybody else, and God gave them that kind of king. His name was Saul. We've already studied him in this book. He was not, not a good king. He's still, still king in our study tonight, but not going to be king for much longer. And we're in the transitional period between David and, or between Saul and, uh, and David. What we studied last week was the second instance where Saul uh, is trying to kill David because Saul knows that David's going to take over. And Saul is trying to kill David, but God delivers Saul into David's hands. But David is unwilling to lift up his hand against the anointed of God. And as a result of that, he lets Saul go. And, you know, you got this, if you were here last week, you remember this. Um, Saul, David had a chance to kill Saul, and he said, I'm not going to do it. And then he tells Saul, look, I could have killed you. And Saul says, I'm, you're a better man than I am. I, I shouldn't be doing this. I'm not going to hurt you anymore. And, and then they go their separate ways. And then Saul returns to his past patterns. That brings us to 1 Samuel 27. All right, look at this with me. This is a short chapter. We're going to try our best to cover chapters 27 and 28 tonight. If I look at you right now, I would see skepticism in your eyes, I'm sure, as we typically don't cover more than one chapter. But anyway, we're going we're gonna to give it a shot. This is a short one. And so we'll, um, I don't want to gloss over important stuff, but at the same time, I want to I move through this text so we can get through it the next uh, rest, rest of this quarter. First Samuel 27. So David's on the run still. All right, he's running from Saul. God has delivered him into his hands a couple of times, but David still doesn't seem to fully trust that God's going to take care of things. Remember the last chapter he said when he, when he w had the opportunity to kill Saul, he said, I'm not going to do it. You know, had somebody with him and, and that somebody said, look, you just step back a little bit and I'll take care of this problem once and for all. David says, I'm not going to do this because uh, God will take care of this. God will take care of him, but he's not gonna, I'm not going to do it. He'll take care of him through war. He'll take care of him and some other way. I don't know if God will take care of it. But you see some vacillation, I think, with David. You see some hesitancy here where he doesn't fully believe that, I think. He doesn't fully believe God's going to protect his life. Because look at, look at 1 Samuel 27. All right, here it is. Verse 1. Then David said in his heart, Now I shall perish one day by the hand of Saul. You wonder why he's thinking that. After God has done what God has done, God has protected him, he's preserved him. I think David's up and down, I think. There is nothing better for me than that I should escape to the land of the Philistines. Then Saul will despair of seeking me any longer within the borders of Israel, and I shall escape out of his hand. So David arose and went over, he and the 600 men who were with him, to Achish, the son of Maok, king of Gath. And David lived with Achish at Gath, he and his men, every man with his household, and David with his two wives, Ahinoam of Jezreel, and Abigail of Carmel, Nabal's widow. And when it was told Saul that David had fled to Gath, he no longer sought him. Then David said to Achish, If I have found favor in your eyes, let a place be given me in one of the country towns that I may dwell in there, that I may dwell there. For why should your servant dwell in the royal city with you? So that David Achish gave him Ziklag. Therefore Ziklag has belonged to the kings of Judah to this day. 
And the number of the days that David lived in the country of the Philistines was a year and four months. And David and his men went up and made raids against the Geshurites, the Gerzites, and the Amalekites, for these were the inhabitants of the land from of old, as far as Shur, to the land of Egypt. And David would strike the land and would leave neither man nor woman alive, but would take away the sheep, the oxen, the donkeys, the camels, and the garments, and come back to Achish. When Achish asked, where have you made a raid today? David would say, against the Negev of Judah, or against the Negev of the Jeremelites, or against the Negev of the Kenites. And David would leave neither man nor woman alive to bring news to Gath, thinking lest they should tell about us and say, so David has done. Such was his custom all the while he lived in the country of the Philistines. And Achish trusted David, thinking he has made himself an utter stint to the people of Israel, to his people Israel. Therefore, he shall always be my servant. All right, let's talk about this chapter for a minute. A couple of interesting things here. You got the very first part of the chapter, verse, verse 1, that David said in his heart, now I shall perish one day. I, I don't want to read too much into this, you know, uh, because I think a lot of times as we read these, these stories, these narratives, it doesn't pass judgment one way or the other. But at the same time, I think you see here that David has taken his eyes off of God once again, and he's put his confidence in his own abilities and his own strategies and his own, you know, just manipulating events in order to save his own life. And he's taken his eyes off of God. You may think I'm reading too much into that. I don't, I don't know. But David says, in his heart, now I shall perish one day by the hand of Saul. Look, how many times does God have to save him before he trusts that God's actually going to keep his word and make him king? You know, I mean, it does seem a little bit, to me it seems a little bit, Faithless for David to reason in his heart after God has just he's been preserving him for some time now, and, and David basically says, He's gonna kill me. I gotta run. I gotta go to that's the only safe place for me is in Philistia. It's the only place I got to go. And he gets himself in a tough spot there in Philistia. If you've read ahead, you've you've already read this. He gets himself in a tough position. Well, actually, even if we cover the next chapter, we, we won't get exactly to that tough spot because it doesn't come around until chapter 29. We've got a little bit of an interlude in chapter 28. So, David reasons within himself. I've got I've to, I'm going to die. He's going he's gonna to kill me. And I don't want to, again, I don't want to belabor this point, but he just said, I'm not going to kill him because God's going to take care of him. He just said that in the last chapter. And now he says... I'm going, to, I'm going to die by the hands of Saul. So, a little bit wishy-washy. And maybe that's understandable in some ways because he's, he's on the run, he's tired, he's frustrated, he's disappointed. He says, there's nothing better for me than that I should escape to the land of the Philistines. Really? That's, that's, the, that's the best thing? That's, there's nothing better than that? Well, I don't think he's right on that. Uh, but thinking politically and uh, thinking about What's the best thing for him to do to escape the hand of Saul right now? This, this makes sense, and it works out for him in that way because Saul's not going to go into Philistia. They're, they are perpetual enemies of Israel, and so he's not going to go into Philistia. That would just provoke a war with Philistia, something he doesn't want, as you'll see in the next chapter. He doesn't, he doesn't want to fight them. They're stronger than he. 
And so this works out well for David as far as that's concerned. But then it presents another problem, which we'll talk about in a minute. Okay. So he goes to Philistia. Now, I want to point something out that you may not have noticed as you read this. But he goes to Gath, all right? Now, Gath, this is the capital of Philistia. King of Gath is Achish. He had fled to Philistia earlier. If you remember how many chapters ago that's been, several chapters. He, he, when he was first running away from Saul, he went to Philistia. And they basically said, no, no, you, you, you come in here to, to spy us out. You know? So it didn't go well the first time. But things have changed some since then. Uh, Philistia has a little bit of a different perspective, or at least Achish, the king of Gath, does. So uh, David goes there. He's got all of his men with him. He's got his wives with him. His men have their families with them. So you're talking about, I don't know, a thousand people? Maybe more? In verse 4, it was told Saul that David had fled to Gath and he no, he no longer sought him. All right, so it's working out so far. I don't think ultimately it works out great, but it's working out right now. Basically what David says to uh, Achish, starting in verse 5, is, um, you know, I don't think he's being completely honest here or forthright, but he says, I don't want to trouble you guys in the capital. I know I've got a bunch of people here, and it would be better for me to go out somewhere else and live in Philistia rather than taking up precious space and resources in the city. I think David has an ulterior motive here, as we'll see down below, but that's what he says. And Achish, probably ready to get rid of David, or at least get him out of the capital, he says, that's good. So he lets him go. Okay, now, something I want you to notice here, and I didn't realize this until I looked at this more closely and read some stuff about this, but in verse 6, Achish gave David Ziklag. All right, there's an emphasis in this chapter on the land. All right. Um, back up with me just a second in your minds to um, Genesis 12. One of the most important verses in the Bible. Genesis 12, 1 through 3. 1 through 7. God makes promises to Abraham. This is a, a pivotal part, foundational part of the Bible all over the place. You've got from Genesis 12 on, you've got these promises God made to, Dave, to Abraham. I'm going to make of you a great nation. I'm going to give you this land. and gives the borders of the land. Northern border, southern border western, eastern border. I'm going to give you this land. Very, very important to these people, you know. And then I'm going to bless the whole world through you, and I think that's looking ahead to Jesus. But throughout the Old Testament, you've got this emphasis on the land, the land, the land. I'm going to give you this land. It's going to go this far north. I mean, the boundaries are given. I'm going to give you this land. And so, that, I mean, that's a promise that's all over the place. And so when did they get the land? You remember Moses led them out of Egypt and led them to the border of the land and then they rebelled and they had to go back in the wilderness for 40 years or so. And then a new generation arose. Moses died and Joshua took them into the land. They conquered Jericho and Ai and these other cities and they, they set up residence in the land. But they did not they did not fully drive out the inhabitants of the land. This is important so stay with me for, for a second. They didn't completely occupy the land. The reason I mention that to you now is that the city of Ziklag was within those boundaries that God had proscribed. 
Ziklag was within, and when, when God said, it's going to go this far north, this far south, this far east, this far west, to the Mediterranean Sea on the west, um, when, um, when God gave those boundaries, Ziklag is in there. And, and so when Achish says, David, you can have this city, I think David planned this so that when he left the city of Gath, he would be given a land that was part of the inheritance. Okay, now hold that thought just for a second because uh, Ziklag was, was in the land. So he is helping to fulfill that promise that God made to Abraham. He's, he's, uh, he's going into the land and he's taking over, or at least partially taking over a city that belonged to Philistia, a non-Israelite people, right? Now, in order to help strengthen my case that I think this chapter has a lot to do with the land, read on. I already read this, but these names don't mean a whole lot to us, do they? Verse 8. He goes up and he makes raids against the Geshurites, the Gerzites, and the Amalekites. For, now listen to this. For these were the inhabitants of what? The land. Now, this, this book is being written later you know this is this book is being written later and it's being read to israel later in fact i skipped over that part earlier verse six ziklag has belonged to the kings of judah to this day so why does that matter well it matters because the the narrator of first samuel writing this years later to people in the land, he's giving them a history of how God has been faithful to his promise as long as God's people are faithful. And so he's giving them a history. David went into Ziklag, and, it, and since that day, it has been possessed by Israel, which was a promise God made to Abraham. See this? So he's, he's helping them to see, look, David, David is, uh, is being blessed here, and he's taking possession of this, of this city. Okay, so starting in verse 8 then, the Geshurites, the Gerzites, and the Amalekites. These were the inhabitants of the land. What land? He's talking specifically about the land of Canaan, right? the land that God had promised Israel. So they had been living in the land. It didn't belong to them. They were supposed to have been driven out by Israel back in Joshua's day, but they weren't. So David starts making raids against them. Why? I think because David knows that that is God's land, it's Israel's land, and he wants Israel to possess the land that God had given them. And that's why he doesn't want Achish to know what he's doing. You read about the, all the kind of the, the, the lying going on? It, the, again, it's easy to read over. It's easy not to see this. So, so David goes up and he makes these raids against these people living in Canaan, living in God's land. And he would leave neither man or woman alive. Wouldn't leave anybody alive. Why? So they wouldn't tell Achish what he was doing. Why does he care? Why does Achish care? Because, again, these names don't mean a whole lot to us unless you look more closely. Down to verse 10, it's important to see this. Achish would ask David when he got back from one of these raids, where'd you, where'd you go? David didn't say, oh, I went up to raid against the Amalekites. He didn't say that. He didn't say, I went up against the Geshurites or the Gerzites. Why? Because he wanted Achish to think 
that he's raiding land that Judah possessed. He's wanting, he's wanting Achish to think that David is attacking his own people. Did you, did you catch that down below? He, he says, I didn't want to... Or, or it says, what, at the very end of this, Achish trusted David? Why did he trust David? Well, I mean, Philistia and Israel were, were perpetual enemies. But if David is attacking Israel, they'll never take him back. He must really be on my side because he's attacking his own people. He's made himself odious stench to his own people because he's attacking He's attacking them because that's what David told him he was doing, but he wasn't. So, so, so when he says this in, in verse 10, Achish would say, hey, David, where have you been raiding? And David would say, I, that word negev uh, ends with a B, but it's, um, in some, in the ESV, it, does, it really has a V sound at the end of it. So the negev just means the south part. So I've been raiding against the south part of Judah, my own people. I've been raiding against the negative of the Jeremalites, my own people. I've been raiding against the negative of the Kenites, my own people. He's lying through his teeth. He hasn't been raiding in those areas. He's been raiding against the Amalekites, the Gersites, uh, these others. Okay, so he's lying here. But he's and and that's why it says. In verse 11, David would leave neither man nor woman alive to bring news to Gath, thinking lest they should tell, us, tell about us and say, so David has done. So when he goes and he raids against these, these, uh, these areas, he doesn't leave anybody alive because he doesn't want them to come down to Achish and say, oh, David's been raiding up here in our area. See, that would contradict the story that he's giving Achish, which is I've been raiding in my own land. So, yes, ma'am. That's a big, big question, and one that is deserves a deserves a better response than I'm going to give it right now because of time. But in case y'all can't hear Margaret's question, I mean, probably the most significant question for me in the Old Testament that I wrestle with is the one that you ask, and that is, well, it, it it's the kind of the backdrop of that question, having to do with, you know, why does God allow, or condone, or command? some of this, uh, these raids that go all the way back to you know, Joshua where the, the uh, indigenous people of Canaan were, were, were killed. You know, it's, a big, it's a big question. And, I, and so, I mean, you, you ask, or you say, you know, David is, uh, is making these raids and he's killing men and women, and, it's, and he is. And um, so he's similar to a, a terrorist. I'd, I'd stop sort of saying that. Um, I'd stop sort of calling, you know, saying that about him because I think you have to read that in the context of some other stuff going on in the Old Testament where the inhabitants of the land, God had given them hundreds of years to correct some of the things they were doing. And, and these, these Amalekites and these other inhabitants of the land were guilty of awful, awful things, including child sacrifice, all sorts of sexual deviation, uh, 
worshiping these pagan gods and doing awful things. And God had commanded his people to go in there and to remove this sin from the people. So it's more than God saying, just go in there and kill you know, men, women, and children, innocent people, um, because I don't care about them. You know, I don't love them. I love you. I don't, I don't love them. It's, it's not like that. But the entire books are written about that. You know, there's God a Moral Monster by Co- Paul Copen is one. Um, the God I Don't Understand by Christopher Wright is another that deal with that question. So it's, it's, a, it's a tough thing, and, and, uh, and you do have to wrestle with that. And, and again, I think it's probably the most difficult moral question we deal with in the Old Testament, one of the accusations made against God. Now, you can open a can of worms there, and we could spend the rest of tonight and weeks talking about that. I don't want to do that uh, because I didn't prepare for that, and also I want, to, I want us to move through this text, okay? But just be aware. If you, if you wrestle with that, you know, talk to me later, and, and I'll give you some stuff to, to think about and to read on that. Uh, if, if you've wrestled with it, and if it's if something you've heard, and if you, if you read, you know, Hitchens or some of these, some of these, uh, some of these prominent atheists these days. Not well, Hitchens died, but some of the prominent atheists. That's one of the things they're going to say. Look, your God does this. Your God does this. This is the God that you love, the God that you worship, and He's He's no better than this this terrorism going on in the world today. You know, so I think they're good and balanced responses to that. All right, but I want to move on through this, okay? Um, and the uh, David does go in there. He does kill men and women. His reason, his stated reason is, I don't want them to tell what I'm doing. There's also a connection here to... You remember back, 1 Samuel 15, there's a connection to 1 Samuel 15. You remember back when we studied that, that that is where God told Saul to go into the Amalekites and, and uh, to kill King Agag and all the people, men, women, and children, animals, everything. In fact, the word, the, the phrase there is, in the ESV, devote them to destruction. Some translations put that, put them under the ban. It's this Hebrew word that has a lot of meanings, but it basically means you, you, uh, you, you devote them to destruction. You Anyway... Saul was told to do that with Amalekites. You remember what he did? He spared Agag, and he spared the best of the flocks, the best of the animals. Well, and God, God said, because you've disobeyed me, he sent Samuel to him, because you've disobeyed me, I'm going to take the kingdom away from you. Because he, he was unwilling to do, and this was commanded back in Deuteronomy, by the way, when you go into the land, you're going to devote the inhabitants of the land to destruction. You're going to put them under the ban. You're going to kill them, you're going to cease the, you're going to cause to cease all this awful atrocities and the sin that's being committed in the land. You're going to put an end to that by devoting them to destruction. So Saul was unwilling to do that and as a result of that the kingdom was taken away from him. That was the Amalekites. Alright, what do you see here in chapter 27? David was raiding against whom? One of them was the Amalekites. Okay? Now he doesn't kill the animals. He brings them back to Philistia, but he does kill the men and the women. And so a lot of people connect that to the fact that he, though partially, I think, is trying to obey what Saul was unwilling to obey. 
he was taking these Amalekites who were not supposed to be there and who were had been given hundreds of years to straighten up and they hadn't straightened up and so God is driving them out of the land and David is fulfilling the promise or fulfilling a, obeying the command that Saul was unwilling to lots of stuff lots of stuff to think about um, and I do think as I mentioned earlier there's an emphasis on the land here the land Ziklag is in the land these areas that he's raiding they are people living in the land that God had promised to his people and so David is, is, is going into the land, and he is, and you see the emphasis that. He says, you know, Ziklag has belonged to the kings of Judah to this day. And then when he talks about the Geshurites, the Gerzites, and the Amalekites, he says, they were the inhabitants of the land from of old. They're not now. From the perspective of the narrator, they're not now, but they were then. Donnie. No, they're not. They're not. So why would he care? Yeah, absolutely. I don't know to what extent David was aware of what he was doing, if David was concerned about the land. You know, I do think he... I do think he had in mind he didn't want to attack Israel. And certainly there's political savviness involved in this. He knows if he attacks Israel, he's going to be the king. That's going to present all sorts of complications in coming days if he's going to be the king over people he's just finished attacking. Uh, and it would be better for him not to, not to raid them. So that may be all there is there, Donnie. You know, it may be it's just politics. It's just David doing what is politically expedient in the moment. But I think from the reason I'm emphasizing the land here is because I think the narrator, at least, the one who wrote this down, is emphasizing, look, David was giving Zik, given Ziklag, it's in the land. And these areas he's raiding, they are in the land. You know, David, whether he knows it or not, I don't know how much he was conscious of it, but he is being used by God to bring under God's control, under Israel's control, areas of the land should have been brought under control years earlier, but weren't because people were disobedient. All right. I think we're going to get through chapter 28. <laughs> it's all right. It's all right. Uh, good, good thoughts, good, good comments, and I, and I do appreciate them. Uh, so that's, that's what's going on. You know, you've got David lying. There's, there's certainly political considerations here. He knows he, he can't raid in his own, against his own people if he wants to rule over them. He needs, he's going to need their political support for too long. And so he doesn't do it. He raids against the enemies of his people. And then he lies to Philistia and tells them he's raiding against his own people. So that Achish will think David's on his side. Which is going to... In fact, go ahead and look at chapter 28. And in fact, verses 1 and 2 really belong to the previous thought, at least. In those days, the Philistines gathered their forces for war to fight against Israel. All right, so here's the conflict. They would do this often. And Achish said to David, understand that you and your men are, are to go out with me in the army. Do you see what he's saying? This is why David 
this is where David gets in a bad position. Because David has acted like, hey, I'm, I'm against Israel too, just like you, king. Just like you. See, I'm going up here and raiding my own people. So when real war comes between Philistia and Israel, King Achish comes to David and says, okay, you've been raiding against your own people. He thinks David's on his side. He says, all right, we're going to go to war against them, and you know where you're going to be? You're going to be fighting with the Philistines. David is in a pickle here. And he gives an ambiguous response that he knows how Achish is going to interpret it. And he basically says, but you know what I can do. He doesn't actually say he's going to do it, but he says, I, I, I can take care of stuff. You know, you know what I can do? You've, 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 you've seen it. So David is uh, he's kind of going to, and if he, do, if he goes along with that, I mean, if he does support Philistia in this upcoming battle, it's going to be bad. It's not going to be good at all for him to do that. But that's the, that's the impression he leaves with him. And uh, he says, you know what I can do? And Achish said to David, very well, I will make you my bodyguard for life. All right, you're going to go with me. You're going to fight with me. And it'll be good. That didn't happen on chapter 29. So that's why that, you have this little story here in the middle that doesn't seem to have any real connection to what happens in chapter 27 or what happens in chapter 29. I think it does have some, some sort of connection, but it, it's a, an interruption in the narrative. And uh, basically what you have in the, in the rest of chapter 28 is you have this story about Saul going to uh, someone, a necromancer, who puts him in contact with Samuel, who's been dead a while. All right, let's look at this. Uh, we... Uh, I don't know how much of this I'm going to read and how much I want to just tell you. I hope you've already read it. Uh, here's, all right, I'm not going to read all this uh, for sake of time. Here's what happens, in case you haven't read. All right. Saul is at a low point. In fact, he's at the lowest point of his life up until this point. And he's desperate. He sees Philistia coming against him. He gets a good vantage point. Uh, at Gilboa, verse 4, and he saw the army, the army of the Philistines, and he was afraid, and his heart trembled greatly, which is a common theme with Saul. He, he was often afraid. He looks down there, and he sees this army coming against him. He's ruled by his fear, and he says, what am I going to do? What am I going to do? He tries to talk to the Lord, but the Lord won't hear him. Why won't the Lord hear him? Because Saul's been in rebellion to the commands of God for a long time now. And God won't respond to him. He, he seeks God in what the, the Urim, does it say? The Urim and dream. God won't answer him by dreams or by Urim. That was a, some sort of method of seeking the will of God through the priesthood. And the priests have abandoned him because he would kill most of them. Or by prophets. Samuel's dead. He doesn't have anybody. In other words, he doesn't have, he didn't know what to do. He's desperate, and God won't respond to him. And so he says to his servants, Find me a medium that I may go to her and inquire of her. And his servants tell him about a, a medium, the witch of Endor, the medium of Endor. Um, and, it, and it says in verse 3, Saul at least had, had enough commitment to the law that he knew what the law said about it. If you want to run references on this, Leviticus 19.31 
Leviticus 20, verse 6, and Deuteronomy 18, 14, where the law speaks to this sort of thing, this sort of uh, spiritism, this sort of uh, sorcery. Do I, um, Leviticus 19, verse 31, Leviticus 20, and verse 6, and Deuteronomy 18, verse 14. There are other places, but those are three of the most prominent where the law basically says you don't consult a medium, and if you do, you will be cut off from your people, which is important for this chapter. Don't do this. So Saul had at least enough commitment to the law. He had driven these people out of the land, or at least driven them underground. Okay? But he's at the bottom. I mean, he's at the bottom. And he says to his servants, oh, God won't hear me. Give me a witch. Give me a, a medium. And I'm going to try to find somebody who will answer me. So yeah, he disguises himself. And, and by the way, if you look at the geography here, he's really he kind of has to pass through the outskirts of Philistia or the, where the Philistines, Philistines possess the land. He has to disguise himself, kind of sneak through there, and it's a very you know, dangerous deal. But he, he, he goes to this witch of Endor, and she says, you know this is illegal. He says, don't worry about it. She didn't recognize him initially. He says, nothing's going to happen. Well, there's something here I think you, you ought to know, you ought to see. Verse 10, David, or Saul, swore to her by the Lord, as the Lord lives, no punishment shall come upon you for this thing. That's blasphemous. He is using the name of God to say that God will not punish you for doing what God said he would punish you for. God was very explicit about what God will do with these people who practice this. And Saul calls upon the name of God to say a lie about God. It's, just, it's bad, bad stuff, what he's, what he's doing here, what he's saying. He brings in the name of God. It's blasphemous. And uh, the woman says, you know, who do, who, who do you want me to bring? And he says, Samuel. Samuel's been dead. We don't know how long he's been dead, but he's been, he's been gone. And so she calls up Samuel. Speculation. I don't, I don't know. You've probably got questions about this like I do. Does she, is this the power of evil? Is this the power of Satan that, that brings up Samuel? Is it, the, is it God doing this? Is it, some people say it's a hallucinogenic drugs involved in this thing. We, we don't know for sure. My, my guess is what I would lean to is that God is the one who makes this happen who brings Samuel up in some sort of vision for this witch. But ultimately, I guess it doesn't matter. The text doesn't tell us. It just tells us what she does and what happens. Samuel comes up, and, and it scares her. That makes me think she's not used to this sort of thing happening, you know, because she kind of, Samuel comes up, and she's like, whoa. I don't think she expected Samuel to respond. Anyway, Samuel does respond, and then... I do want to read this part because verse 13, she says to Saul, I see a God coming up out of the earth. That word God there, your, your Bible might say spirit, but it really is it's the word Elohim, which is used of deities and, and also sometimes of angels. But I see a God coming up out of the earth. He said to her, what is his appearance? And she said, an old man is coming up. He's wrapped in a robe. And Saul knew that it was Samuel. All right, verse 15. Samuel said to Saul, why have you disturbed me by bringing me up? 
And Saul answered, I am in great distress, for the Philistines are warring against me, and God has turned away from me and answers me no more, either by prophets or by dreams. Therefore, I have summoned you to tell me what shall do, what I shall do. All right, pause here just for a second. What happens when you keep covenant? God blesses you. What happens when you break covenant? You will be punished. It's what Deuteronomy said. It's what the law said. It's what the Old Testament emphasizes again and again. God is faithful to the covenant. God will bless you. All right. So Samuel responds. Why then do you ask, verse 16, why then do you ask me since the Lord has turned from you and become your enemy? The Lord has done to you as he spoke by me. For the Lord has torn the kingdom out of your hand and given it to your neighbor David because you did not obey the voice of the Lord and did not carry out his fierce wrath against Amalek. All right, connection to the previous chapter? I got to think there is. David was raiding Amalek, and here Samuel brings it up to Saul, you did not do what I said with reference to Amalek. I don't know, I think there's some sort of connection there. Therefore, latter part of verse 18, the Lord has done this thing to you this day. Moreover, the Lord will give Israel also with you into the hand of the Philistines, and tomorrow you and your sons shall be with those verses I referenced earlier, you practice this sort of divination, you will be cut off from the people. So Saul is, Samuel brings up Amalek, he did that. Now he's added this grievous sin of consulting the medium and then lying using the name of God. It, it's, it's bad. And, and Samuel basically says, when you don't keep the covenant, you know, you know what the law says about this Saul. You're doing this? You brought me up through this act of treachery and sin? And because you've done this, you're going to receive what the covenant said, and, or what the law said, and that is, you seek a medium, you will be cut off from the people. And tomorrow, you and your boys, you and your sons are going to be here with me. You're going to die. That's what he's saying. You're going to receive the punishment that the law spelled out for what you're doing. God keeps his promises. And the people are going to be punished as well, right along you, they're, alongside of you, they're going to they're gonna lose to the Philistines. And let's look at the end of this. We're almost out of time. We are out of time. And I want to just look at this last chapter. We'll finish up here, last part of the chapter. Saul fell at once full length on the ground. I think he basically, he just loses it, you know. He just falls apart. Filled with fear because of the words of Samuel. And there was no strength in him, for he had eaten nothing all day and all night. Just a side note there, you may remember a few months ago we looked at this, but Saul had made this ridiculous vow that you don't need to fast when you're preparing for war. You may remember that. If it brings up, brings up a memory, that's probably what's going on here. And Jonathan broke it, you know, by eating the honey, if you remember that story. But anyway, he'd eaten nothing all day and all night. And the woman came and said, you know, I need to eat something. He refuses at first. He cooks some meat, bakes some bread, and he eats. Verse 25 says they left. That's the end of that chapter. And then we go back to David, you know, chapter 29, which we'll talk about next week. Just a quick, just a quick word. Why do we have this story here? I think we've got the story here to show, again, a contrast between David and Saul. A contrast between when you seek God, God blesses you. And when you don't seek God, or when you only seek God, you know, when you're in dire straits, as, as Saul, Saul doesn't, doesn't care about the will of the Lord until he gets to a point where he's desperate. 
just the contrast here. And then we move on with the story in chapter 29. Uh, I know you probably got, you may have thoughts and questions and all that. We're out, we're out of time, but um, this is just it's interesting here to see as we go into the last, we've got, what, three chapters left, I guess? And uh, we'll cover them over the next uh, couple of weeks, and we'll finish up First Samuel this quarter. But, um, but again, just to get this idea, God wants us to trust him, and he wants us to keep the covenant, be faithful to him. And if we do that, if we trust him, even when we don't understand what he's doing or why he's doing it, if we'll trust him, he'll work things out. He'll work things out. But if we rebel against him, God will keep his promises on that front as well. Thanks so much. Y'all have a good night.